Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all of the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on the earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I am going to put an end to all the people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I'm surely going to destroy both them and the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, as we consider this challenging text, we pray, as always, for insight into who you are and into who we are and into the relationships you're calling us into with you, with each other, and with ourselves. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, if you were with us uh, last week, you know we are in the midst of... By the way, Chad, good to see you. I'm a pastor of my old church where I grew up, Spencerville. I was a little kid running around the halls of Spencerville. Great to see you here today. Um, you don't know this, but for those who have been around at least last week, you know we're in the midst of our mini-series this, this uh, fall uh, talking about bad beliefs. These are the ideas uh, that hinder our relationship with ourselves, with each other, with uh, God. And today's bad belief of the, is the idea that God controls everything in the universe. Uh, by the way, you can go to avenhope.org and catch up on this series if you missed last week's. And you, in fact, you can go back and watch sermons or listen to sermons from way back when. So bad beliefs today, the bad belief we're wrestling with is the idea that God controls everything in the universe. This idea manifests its, itself all the time in Christian language when we talk about uh, God's will as if everything has an explanation rooted in God's desire in the world or in the universe. We imagine that when things go bad, it must be that God is up to something. He's got a a plan, and we try to use this idea of God's will to explain when tragedy comes. Uh, we, we come up with explanations for what's going on. We imagine uh, when mysterious things happen that are beyond our, our control, that God must be at work. He must be designing things, and, and uh, that the bad that is happening, he has a reason for it. And so we talk about this idea of God's will, especially when scenarios, we're confronted with scenarios that are challenging to us. When our plans go sideways, we imagine that God is, uh, is uh, doing behind it somehow. He's, he's working and it's his plan that these things are happening. Uh, but the truth is the Hebrew Bible gives us a different idea about God and how he works. Uh, of course, the Hebrew Bible we often call it the Old Testament. We derive much of our New Testament theology from the Hebrew Bible. But the, the uh, Hebrew Bible gives a different idea about how God acts. That God restrains himself from exercising his unlimited power and allows things to happen that are not part of his plan, that are not part of his desire. God is a God that chooses to govern using a set of ground rules, if you will and voluntarily inhibits the use of his power. Thus, God cedes control over others. Uh, we see this in the story of Job. At the beginning of Job, God is ceding uh, power 
if you will, allowing someone else to make decisions that are going to have impacts that are not part of his design. Uh, a, a quick recap for those uh, who may be new to the gospel story, the Bible story today. Uh, the Bible story in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 tells that uh, God, the great supreme, all-powerful God of the universe, created the world. Genesis 1 gives one account. Genesis 2 gives a second account because the Bible likes to reiterate things when things are important. So it tells the story of creation. And uh, we can imagine the story of Genesis 1 and 2 is a story like any parent who is awaiting uh, a child to come. You know, if you have a, you're, you're, we, we have some, we have some pregnant parents here, parents to be, can't reveal all of them yet, but exciting things to, to come. And you know, when you're a, a parent and you're anticipating the arrival of your newborn, you do things like you find a room, or in New York, you might find a corner. You know, you don't have the extra room, so you'll find a corner, and you, you maybe paint the corner, and you put the crib in the corner, and you get the toys, and you put all of them around, and you are prepared. You make it perfect, special, because you want that, that place to be a place where that, that newborn can grow and flourish and thrive. And so we get that picture in Genesis 1 and 2 that God creates this incredible world, and he sets things up so that humans can thrive, and he crafts things specifically for them with the anticipation that his kids are going to have a place to, to grow and to love and to uh, learn. But then we, we uh, read the story that in the midst of this garden, God also <laughs> deposits or crafts this tree, a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it's right there in the midst of the garden. And then he tells once the, once the kids come, he, and, and when the story is God gets down on his knees in the clay of the earth and he forms the first human. And then it's his breath that goes in and gives life to the first uh, human. And so then he instructs the first humans how to live in this garden. He, you can imagine he tells them all about the exciting things that are there and everything that they have at their disposal so that they can flourish. But in the midst of the garden, there's a tree, and he's like, don't touch the tree. Everything else is yours. Well, Bible students have asked for centuries, why is that tree in the garden? And the only, the only rational explanation is God is a God of consent. God believes, he's not a, a God of compulsion. He's a God of compassion, a God who wants to be in healthy relationship with us. And in order for that, you have to have an out. You have to have the ability to make a decision to go your own way. And so God puts the tree in the garden. It's there. The humans are given the ability to have consent that they can choose whether they want to be in this relationship or not. It's, they're, they're not, they're not there's no compulsion. And so they have the opportunity to go against God and go their own way. And so if you read the story in Genesis chapter 3, the first humans exercised their free will and went their own way, made the choice. And the trajectory of the world immediately changed. They start arguing with each other before Genesis 3 is even done with each other. And by the time we get to Genesis chapter 6, our text of emphasis today, the world is completely out of control. Verse 11 says, the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. We're told uh, violence was a key issue here. Uh, the, the Hebrew word is Hamas, violence. This is the thing that brought God to the conclusion that things have got to change. The world was so incredibly violent that he needed to put an end to things. And uh, 
compassionately. His kids were violently killing each other. And it just, it, it doesn't make sense for things to go on. We're told that later every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all of the time. And then, profoundly, verse 6 says, the Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. That's a pretty profound idea. The Lord regretted. Uh, this is uh, this word that is translated here in the New International Version, version as regretted can also be tra translated as repented. God repented. In fact, the Old Testament, the Hebrew, Hebrew Bible talks about God repenting quite often. God repented, which means we've talked about repentance a lot before because, of course, Jesus' first message, John the Baptist's first message when they showed up in the New Testament was to repent. Repent literally means to acknowledge the way that you're going and to change directions and go a different way, all right? So repentance in the context of you and me often has to do with mistakes that we've made or decisions that were bad that we have to acknowledge are not heading us in the right direction, but that we need to go in the other direction. That's not the issue here for God, right? He's not, he didn't do something wrong, but he's acknowledging the circumstances as they stand, expressing regret and repenting, going in a different way. God can repent. That doesn't imply that he did something wrong or that sin was involved. It's just adapting to the circumstances as they now stand. Tomorrow, Jude and I, my son, who's 12, we are going to get on our bikes as we do for many Sundays for the last two months. And we are going to ride to Randall's Island where he will play a baseball game. And the, World Series are, uh, the World Series is happening right now. And this is not the World Series, it's just the next level underneath, it's Yorkville baseball. This is the Yorkville, the games are at Randall's Island. So as our tradition has been for the last two months, we we're gonna get on our bicycles and we are going to ride to Randall's Island, which is an island off the island of Manhattan, if you're familiar with it, and their baseball fields. And so we're gonna do, as our tradition is, we're gonna get on uh, 88th Street and we're gonna go down toward First Avenue. But as we approach First Avenue, we are going to repent. Why are we going to repent? Because I have the foreknowledge. In fact, last night we were getting on to plot out how we we're going to do this. We're going to repent. We're going to change direction. We're going a different way because you know why we're going to go a different way? Uh, because there are going to be people running. You guys are running on First Avenue, and it is impossible to get across First Avenue when everybody's running. Have you, has that ever, you ever got stuck? One time, I, we had brunch with someone on the east side of First Avenue, uh, and then, well, I don't know what we were thinking, we got stuck over there, and you know, there's only like two more avenues, and we, were st we could not get four blocks over from the marathon. Anyway, Jude and I are gonna repent, we're gonna change direction, because we have foreknowledge and we know that First Avenue is taken up, we're gonna go up Second Avenue to 125th Street and go over the RFK Bridge. Way more information than you need, but you get the idea. We know we're not gonna do the thing that we've been doing because it doesn't work. The circumstances have changed. This is the same idea of God acknowledging and recognizing that circumstances have changed. The world is in chaos in Genesis chapter six. And so he, he, he repents, and there's a re regret in that repentance that things are not as they should be, but you got to do what you got to do. The Bible communicates this imagery about, about God, that God is able to adjust 
to the circumstances that he's confronted with. And being able to adjust is compassionate. It's part of God's character. Rather than allowing a violent and turbulent and destructive world to continue to exist, God is like, we can't have this with my kids. I can't even look at it anymore. And so he's got to reboot things. If you didn't uh, reboot things, chaos would just continue to to reign and things would get even worse and the violence would be manifested and it just can't go on any longer. And so today we're dealing with a profound idea that God is able to change and adapt. Now, many Christians have not embraced this idea if we're perfectly honest. If you want to look up, uh, you know, you search the idea of God changing, there are those who are like, no, God is not, d- does not change. God is absolutely unchanging. Let's be clear here. We're not talking about God being capricious and just changing on a whim. He's, we're not talking about God's character changing. We're talking about his actions changing. The, 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 the things on the ground are different than they were, and God adapts and adjusts. Character is still the same. But adjusting to the circumstances as they now stand. Um, one of the concerns about a God who changes is that this will affect our understanding of God's sovereignty. Right? God is so- sovereign. Sovereign means to be supremely powerful. Well, like a supremely powerful being cannot change, uh, can it? That's the assertion, that's the concern, that we will lose the idea of God being supremely powerful. But we go back to the idea that, hey, God can still be supremely powerful, but also adapt with compassion when necessary. In fact, you could make the case it's the most, it's the most powerful, it's the most supreme being who is the one to be able to change and adjust uh, as needed. That's, that's compassion. But there are those who are concerned that if we talk about a God who changes, it, 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 it alters our view of God's sovereignty. I would make the case that that's, that's not true. You can be sovereign, you can have supreme power, and limit yourself. In order to preserve God's sovereignty, uh, God must be so different. This is, again, the, the argument that we've got to be careful when you talk about God adapting and changing. God must be so different from the humans that he uh, created, which leads, by, by the way, to two other uh, problematic ideas. We're going to go in a little bit like theology nerds uh, just a moment to, to talk about immutability and impassibility. Some fun theological terms. Immutability uh, means God does not change in any way. God does not change. And impassibility is a, corol- is a corollary construct to immutability that means that God does not experience emotional change in any way, and he does not suffer. The God who does not suffer, suffer. So where did these ideas come from? These are connected to this idea that God controls everything. Where did these ideas come from? Certainly not the Hebrew text, by the way. You read the Hebrew Bible, you're not going to get these ideas. And so where do these ideas come from? Well, it's from the ancient Greeks, like so much else from Western culture. The Greeks developed these ideas. The mythological gods of the Greeks and the Greek uh, pantheon, they were capricious. I mean, they, they were... I mean, their story, the, there's a reason why the Greek God stories have lasted as long as they had. They're incredible. They make incredible movies. The gods are like out of control. They, 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 they change direction which, in, in which they go. They, they, they deal with humans in, in the ways that are wild. It's, it's crazy. The ancient Greek myths, the Greek gods were 
and they were capricious. They changed when they needed to change, and they were very, very unreliable. Well, so along come Greek philosophers who recognize that this is creating a bit of chaos. It's great for a story. It's great for a movie. But this doesn't work in, in practical life. God can't possibly be this way if there's going to be a God. And so you have Plato and Aristotle and later Philo of Alexandria who, who learned his thing from, uh, from Plato. And they were like, no, no, God can't be like this. God can't just change on a whim. We have to have a God who's far off and removed, who is not emotional, who doesn't get excited and then just destroy things. And so they developed the, these ideas of a God who is very far off and removed, who doesn't have emotion, who is timeless, who operates outside of everything that we know and experience as human beings, has no emotions, is not affected by anything, and is absolutely, supremely all-powerful. And that means that everything that happens in the universe happens because God willed it and God designed it. But this is a view that doesn't correspond in any way with the biblical scriptures, neither the Hebrew Bible nor what we call the New Testament. It's just, it's a different God there. And yet, so much of Christian theology has adopted these Greek ideas of God. I mean, in our hearts, I think, we're challenged by this idea of God being far off and removed because we are compelled to be in a relationship with God. We hear about the God of relationships. Genesis chapter 1, present Father, Son, and Spirit working together. And the Bible continues to articulate this idea that God has always existed in community, three in one. And if God exists in community, there has to be some kind of love and emotional response for each other into that. And then the idea that God creates kids God cares for kids. You're telling me God doesn't care. He's emotionless about this. He's timeless. He's all-powerful and, and, and doesn't get engaged and involved. It just doesn't correspond with what the Bible says about who God is. And so for those of us who are familiar with having relationships with each other, this idea that God controls everything and yet he's far off and removed can really be a tough pill to swallow. So thankfully, we go to the Hebrew text, and we find that God is indeed not this way, that God adapts and changes to the circumstances on the ground because God is compassionate, and he has the capacity for love and for anger, fury, and all the attributes that we experience too. God, God experiences those too. That's the, that's the story of the, 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 the Bible. When, when uh, Bible students go back and you read uh, the Hebrew Bible, there are some disturbing actions on the uh, part of God's disturb, disturbing descriptions, including Genesis chapter 6. It can be a little dis disconcerting to think of God that way. And so in one sense, the idea that God is far off and removed may be assuring, but it's just not what the Bible teaches. And so it leaves us with our question today, why is the belief that God controls everything a bad belief? Why are we talking about it in this context? And so three responses for you. First of all, it calls God's character into question. If God is truly in charge of everything that happens in the universe and in this world, why is the world in such chaos now? 
I mean, the world is a, is, is a crazy place. Specifically, right now, it feels like everything's falling apart. And if God desires this, if this is his will, what is he doing? So much uh, tragedy. So many terrible things, things we don't even want to think about that are happening to innocent humans and children and people and animals. It's just, it's overwhelming. God desires this. He is supremely in charge and he is dictating that all of these, th these things happen and remains emotionless to all of the troubles in the world. It's a blight on God's character. Those who are worried about protecting God's sovereignty alone should consider this issue of God's character. His character is in doubt right now. No wonder, by the way, so many people are like, I, I don't have anything to do with organized religion, specifically organized Christianity, because if God is all powerful as they teach and the world is like it is, I don't want to have anything to do with him. And it, you know what? That makes total sense. Explain to me how that doesn't make sense. The world is messed up. And if God is supremely in charge of everything, What's the explanation? Well, of course, Jesus has an explanation. Jesus shows up. He articulates very precisely and clearly what's going on. In Matthew chapter 13, verse 24, uh, we read this. Uh, Jesus talking to the disciples and others who were following, them, following him. He told them a parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where did the weeds come from? And Jesus said, An enemy has done this. See, Jesus introduces a very old and ancient idea, and that there, uh, an idea that goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, the beginning, that there is an enemy involved. God is not alone in the universe. There is an enemy at work, and the enemy is planting bad seeds among the good, and it's creating absolute chaos. And that, em that enemy was given liberty when those first humans exercised their power of free will exercise their consent to invite the enemy in. In fact, Jesus said that that enemy is the prince of this world now, that by the, the, the residents of the world made the choice in Genesis chapter three, and now there's a new sheriff in town, and chaos reigns. There's an enemy at work, and God, who is supremely powerful, allows the enemy to operate because God believes in consent. We aren't forced into a relationship. We're not compelled into a, a relationship. We're invited into a relationship. God calls us into relationship. But he's not going to compel us, and he's not going to force us. This means God doesn't get everything that God wants. God does not get everything that God wants. One of the best examples, again, of this comes from Jesus. This is Matthew chapter 23. This is Jesus in his own words looking at this as a city. God loves cities. And he's looking at the city of Jerusalem. And he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those that, sent, that were sent to you, how often have I longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings? God is emotionless. This, is, this, is, this doesn't make any sense. Here's Jesus says, I have longed to gather you under my wings. 
as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and yet you were not willing. The Bible is clear. God does not get everything that he wants. Now, that's a little disturbing. But it goes back to this idea that Jesus and the entire Bible affirm that there is an enemy at work. There's an enemy at work. By the way, C.S. Lewis famously said, you may have heard this quote, thinking about the enemy, he said, there are two equal and opposite errors in which one can fall when we're talking about God's enemy. One is to disbelieve the existence of God's enemy. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in God's enemy. Fair point. All right, secondly, the idea that God controls everything contributes to, to the idea that our decisions don't make a difference. If you believe God is supremely in control and he's dictating everything that happens, what are our decisions making? In fact, do, do, do we even have the ability to make decisions? We know inherently that things that we decide and do make a difference. It changes how people relate to us. It changes how we relate to ourselves. In the case of Genesis chapter 3, it changed how God had to relate to his first children. Our decisions make a, a difference. Now, this is problematic for those who are like concerned about things, and this is a good thing to be concerned about, is, is that if our decisions make a difference, that gives us a little bit of power because we can choose things. And so there is a concern among Christians that is justified, and that is maybe we might think to ourselves, well, if I have a little bit of, of power, uh, maybe I am contributing to my own rescue when it comes to something like my own personal salvation. Now we know, if you read the New Testament, that it's very clear that God alone is responsible for our rescue. There is nothing that we can do to contribute to our own rescue. We talked about this last, last week. Our value is in, in, inherent, and there's nothing that we can do to, 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 to make ourselves more valuable. God cares about us. We can't rescue ourselves. And so the concern is, hey, if our decisions make a difference, we might start thinking that we are contributing to our own rescue uh, uh, somehow. It's a worthy you note. Know, legalism is a problem. The idea that if we just do certain things, that's going to help contribute to our ultimate value in the end and help rescue us. But listen, you don't have to become a, a legalist to believe, look, your decisions make a difference. In fact, we all have the decision to confess faith in Jesus. We have the power and ability to do that. That doesn't mean that we conjured up the ability to, to rescue ourselves. It's kind of like if I'm sinking in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean all by myself, 3,000 miles from anybody, I'm going to drown and a ship comes up and the guy throws out the, the life preserver. I didn't conjure up the ship with my own power. The ship came all on its own. I did nothing to rescue myself. The only thing that you have to do is decide that you are willing and to be, to be rescued. The Bible goes in farther though, it's like a Navy SEAL jumps off the boat. It's not just like the, you know, the, 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 the little thingy is floating out there right? And that you have to reach it. The Navy SEAL jumps in and, and you're not even doing anything. Grabs you and whisks you off into the helicopter, off the boat. That's the idea. Now, you still have a choice. You can fight off the Navy SEAL and be like, no, I'm going to swim on my own. And then you drown and that's on you. See, but it, the, so the concern is like, oh, if, we, if our decisions make a difference, then we might start thinking to ourselves, well, I've contributed to my rescue. But again, that doesn't make sense. 
I mean, you're thinking, you didn't create the boat. You didn't create the buoy. You're not the Navy SEAL who jumps in. And so, listen, we, our, our decisions make a difference. We can choose to confess faith in the Lord Jesus, and that's not us contributing to our rescue. Are we okay? We got, okay. All right, third one. Uh, the idea that God controls everything has perpetuated the idea that some people are inherently designed to be eternally lost and some people are designed to inherently be saved. If God is control, in control of everything and there are some people who just refuse to accept and believe in God, then the only rational explanation is God wants that to happen. Because God control, he's supremely powerful, and there are some people who are just rejecting God, and so God must want that to happen. What other explanation is there? But again, this is not what the Bible teaches. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, we read this. God is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish but everyone to come to repentance. Peter is saying, Peter, who by the way, spent three and a half years walking and talking with Jesus all the time, every day. Peter is like, God doesn't want anybody to be lost. And so the idea that God is supremely in control of everything and therefore he's controlling the fact that some people are just inherently gonna be lost, it doesn't correspond with what Jesus taught or his, what his disciples taught. Everyone, God wants everyone to be saved. The most famous verse in all the Bible, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. That's the entire world. This idea that some people are inherently just going to be lost because that's God's will, it's dangerous. It's actually physically dangerous. I would assert to you it's a political problem. Imagine that you believe that there are some people who are just bad. And, you know, what are you going to do? Nothing. God, God made them bad. Well, how are you going to treat those people? Of course you're going to treat them as lesser because God made them lesser. It's a problem. And it doesn't, again, correspond with what we understand about the God of the Bible. If we're dealing with the God of the Bible, the God of the Hebrew Bible, the God in the New Testament, not the mythological Greek gods, not the imagined gods of the Greek philosophers, if we're dealing with the God of the Bible, we're talking about a God who cares. A God who is engaged with his kids, a God who loves his kids, and a God who doesn't want any one of his kids to be lost. So God isn't in control of everything. God operates under unwritten, at least to us, ground rules. He doesn't use his supreme power all of the time, or maybe even much of the, the, the time. He allows things uh, to happen. What does that mean for us today? What hope do we have of this broken world? I mean, okay, sometimes we're like, God, please use your supreme power. Come down and, and fix things. Well, that's exactly what he did. But you know, he did that by changing, by adapting to the circumstances. In Philippians chapter 2, we read it like this. God in Jesus was in very nature God 
but he didn't consider equality with God something that he had to hold on to and grasp onto. Rather, he made himself nothing. That's a change, by the way. Made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, something that God had never done in this way before, certainly, and being found in appearance as a human, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. How is God going to fix the problem? He's going to adapt and change to the circumstances on the ground, literally on the ground, on terra firma, on earth. He's going to come down and become a human and get engaged. Hebrews says he knows our sufferings. He knows what we go through because he's been here and he's done it. And so thank God for a God who changes, a God who adapts, a God who repents and says, what's happening now isn't working. We're going in a different direction. A God who became one of us. The God who adapts and changes because he believes in compassion. Not compelling us, not, 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 not making things compulsive, but compelling us by his love and calling us into relationship with him, inviting us and, 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 and becoming a sacrifice for us. Jesus said, when I die and I'm lifted up, I will draw all people to me. I won't, I won't uh, make them compulsory. I will compel them by my actions. Paul says it like this. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. This passage is very cool for many reasons, but one for this, this idea of God adapting and changing it doesn't say God gets everything he wants. It doesn't say God is supremely in charge and dictating and managing uh, every action that happens and the bad things, oh, God is behind that he's, because he's wanting to teach us a lesson. It doesn't say this. It's basically saying bad things are going to happen to you. But God is capable of taking the bad things and turning them into good things. It's not saying God directs the bad things to happen. It's saying he can take bad and make it good. And so when we confess faith in Jesus, Jesus is able to take the bad and turn it into good. It's something only he can do. And so thank God, God is able to adapt and change to the circumstances that he loves us so much that he is willing to do this. He's willing to become a human, to suffer a God who suffers, a God who experiences his emotions, a God who weeps, a God who cares and is compassionate and yet gives us consent to make our own choices. This is the God of the Bible. So as we continue to wrestle with our own relationship with God and with each other and even with ourselves, we continue to reflect on these beliefs that have developed over history and for some of us have really affected our lives. Listen, there are people who have given up on Christianity because they believe that God is supreme and if God is supreme, the world is as messed up as it is, then I'm out of here or God can't possibly be real if this is the case. But the God of the Bible, the one of compassion, the one of consent is a God that is compelling. And so as we continue to wrestle with our bad beliefs, may God convict us and draw us into relationship with him. And may we have the power to confess faith in the Lord Jesus, the Jesus, the God who adapts to our needs and is available for our salvation. May he give you faith and hope today. Amen.